it's real estate. It changes yeah. all the time. There's there's no there's no one way to do it, <laughs> which is part of the reason I like it. it you, you can very much customize it to whatever your goals are. And as a limited partner, I mean, you can look at a thousand deals and say, you know, I like how these guys have planned this one and put it together. And I think I'll invest in that one. Welcome, friends. You are listening to Blue Collar Money, Theories of Middle Class Investing with your hosts, P.W. Gopal and Mike Hatch. Welcome back, everybody, to Blue Collar Money, theories of middle-class investing, where we help everyday folks get financially unstuck. That's right. By taking a blue-collar approach, rolling up our sleeves, getting our hands dirty, and accepting responsibility for our own financial future. Welcome. Glad to have you with us. My name is Mike Hatch, and I am here with P.W. Gopal, as usual. And uh, and so we've got a great interview for you today with uh, with a very unique individual, that I've gotten to know recently, and now PW, you've had the chance to to meet him as well. Just a uh, kind of a salt of the earth, blue collar guy. That um, I just, I, you know, when you talk about someone who's, and I don't mean this in 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 terms of their intellect, but someone who's just simple, in the sense that there's there's no convolution to them. You, you don't get they are who they are, right? They're not necessarily trying to, they're not wearing masks or trying to play games or anything. Just very simple to the point. That's why I feel like Eric Neely is who we just got a chance to talk to PW. What would you, what would your take on that? Yeah, I, when just in thinking about, you know, the time we got spent, I just kept thinking of like gentle and humble in heart. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like he just had this, he's not trying to impress anybody. He's just literally just trying to do, what do you feel like God, what he feels like God has called him to do, you know, which is to, to care for his family and, and to affect the lives of folks, you know, in his community. And mm-hmm. he's got a really cool story. I mean, if, when we talk about blue collar money and, and rolling your, you know, your sleeves up, getting your hands dirty, taking responsibility, like he is the poster child for that. Definitely. I totally agree. Yeah. So I, I took tons of notes and we actually talked about him coming back. Cause I'm, I have so many more questions now. Apartment mm-hmm. syndication is what we talked about. Mm-hmm. Real estate, apartment syndication. Um, and he is, for lack of a better word, like, you know, making the pivot from truck driver, full-time truck driver and part-time real estate guy. But he's making that pivot. He's driving, you know, uh, no pun intended, driving in the direction of becoming a full-time, you know, apartment syndicator, real yeah. estate investor. Which I, man, that's something I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as far as building cash flow, yeah, cash flow. Um, yeah. So if 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 you have any leanings, you know, towards real estate or you know being a landlord, uh, property management, anything like that, building wealth through real estate and cash flow, I think you got to you got to get a notebook out and spend the next forty five minutes with us. Yeah, this gets really practical, I think. And and there's some really great stuff, some tools. Um, and he kind of dives in for us and, and reveals some 
some mechanics of how how this this works basically and how he's been able to accomplish what he's accomplished there. So I think it'll be really a, uh, applicable in a practical way. So yeah, so we're, we talk about that with uh, with Eric Neely. And um, just as a reminder too, uh, we are kicking off our first ever Blue Collar Mastermind uh, very soon. It's it's less than four weeks away, isn't it, PW? Yeah. We're Good talking yeah. July 21st, is that right? Yeah, so when this episode airs, it will be most likely two weeks away from oh yeah that's right you're right 21st so we're we're going to be meeting for five weeks starting wednesday july 21st we're meeting at the noon hour and and the mastermind is called blue collar money uh the blue collar money mastermind investing for kingdom impact that's right and our hope is in that time with myself and mike coaching us you know kind of navigating us through this this process of building an investment plan, but, but really through, you know, getting folks to bring all of their pieces to the table. You know, we've got a lot of puzzle pieces in, in each one of our worlds and it really helps us to get organized when we see the constellation in other people's worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to align, we want to help align the story, right? So, That's right. so what, what our citizenship in heaven mandates us to you know to do as investors and stewards what that looks on a really practical level you know in in our home and how to set up our 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 in finances and investments on paper um you know what we call planting in our field that's right the flattening our our investment um portfolio uh planting in others fields which really has to do with generosity and then Mm-hmm. The last piece is, you know, what's it look like to live a life of worship? Um, you know, bringing all things under the control of God, but for his glory. And so those are the, in, you know, the five pieces that we're going to be covering. Yeah. Mastermind. And it was a great, actually, um, in a sense, transition, not that we'll talk more about this, but, you know, uh, I've been looking at Philippians chapter one, verse 27. It says, um, this is Paul speaking, obviously, to, to the Philippians saying, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that idea there of citizens of heaven and living in, in a way or a manner is another way of, of uh, translating it, or a life worthy of, of being a citizen of, of the kingdom of heaven, that we should be taking that mindset into whatever endeavor we're doing entrepreneurially. Um or uh, in, in investing and, uh, and recognizing that, that we're not citizens of this world of this earth, but we're citizens of, of God's kingdom. And, uh, and by the way, this is, this is the, the meaning behind this word kind of insinuates this idea that it, this is the opposite of making much of ourselves or a big deal of yourself versus living humbly as a citizen of that, of that kingdom. And then um, identifying in obviously in something bigger than yourself to give yourself to, which lo and behold, that's, you know, as we talk to Eric Neely today, that's, we get the feeling, I mean, that that's really his heart as well. And he's living that out. And then an upcoming guest, by the way, that we're having uh, Jimmy song in just a few weeks, he wrote a book with uh, some other folks called thank God for Bitcoin, the creation, corruption and redemption of money. And we'll talk about this book, but I've been reading through it in preparation for that interview. And 
there's a great quote in here that they uh, that they have. It says, "By trading with one another, a community can collectively work to produce more output than individually than individuals could in isolation. By collaborating, we create more through a shared sense of purpose, belonging, and community. This is what we call the anti-entropic principle. So, the anti-entropic principle, opposite of entropy, and entropy is that." law of nature that uh, that basically says that everything is degrading. Everything is is going from order to disorder or or to chaos. It's just everything gets old, it uh, breaks down, it rusts, it whatever. That's that law of entropy. But when we collectively, especially as kingdom citizens come together to uh, to invest and engage in uh, uh, in commerce together in we can have a redemptive influence on the community, which really is an anti-entropic. <laughs> yeah. So Eric is doing that. We'll get to talk to him. And we're hoping in this mastermind as well, that we, when we pull you together in this, that we can all come together and learn more about how to do that practically, um, dig deep in each one of our own uh, specific situations to find out and clarify what the next steps are for us. I mean, I, I'm excited about it. I I know half the guys that are signed up, you know, the other half. Mm-hmm. I can speak for the guys I know that that um, we're on the same page. Like we want the same thing. So I'm pumped that we're going to be able to spend you know time together and and kind of yeah. push into like what that kingdom citizenship means, um, yeah. and then you know what it what it mandates for us uh, here on earth. Now, you know, having said that, just by the time this airs, just know that we we are already at like you know half capacity. Mm, yeah, um, that's right. Folks have signed up. So if you're if you're kind of thinking about it, toying around with it, like, you know, just make sure you contact Mike Hatch at thebluecollarmoney.com. Like send your email in and and get registered. Um, we're gonna be sending out, you know, the registration um like paperwork pretty soon here, but we want to make sure you get in. Um, we are gonna cap the numbers just so we can spend the quality time with each other. That's right. Um Yep. And it's $199 per person to be part of the the mastermind. And that'll, we're going to throw in some other bonus, uh, good stuff as well to come along, to come alongside of that as well, both from, uh, some online courses that, you know, PW is, is working on myself. I'm working on as well to, uh, to be able to supplement this. So yeah, we'd love for you guys to come along, by the way, by the time this airs, it'll be a week out. I just looked at the calendar. So oh, good night. Okay. Yeah. It is a week away. So, um, so yeah, jump on it because slots are limited. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's it for now. And let's go ahead and jump in now to this interview with Eric Neely. Eric Neely, welcome to the blue collar money podcast, man. We are really excited to have you on today. Um, <laughs> excited to be here. So, yeah, definitely. So you and I met um, through kind of another podcast and, and uh, common uh, contact, if you will, that we have in common. And uh, and man, it, it was amazing getting to talk to you for the first time because I, I said I've maybe said this to you when we first talked, but you are like to me at least one of the the examples of what I hope our listeners would be aspiring, uh, toward in a sense, you are a classic blue collar guy, LTL truck driver. For those of you who don't know what that means, 
think of the the big rigs that you see driving by you on the highway with two or three trailers not an easy this is not like a <laughs> that just complicates thing when you things when you add trailers right eric sure yeah it's, a little bit it yeah it's a bit of experience to hop in there but yeah. exactly exactly and we were just sharing before we start recording i used to work in a, a yard for a trucking company where i would uh, drive rigs around, hook them up to trailers, um, drive the trailer and the truck around the yard. I mean, no, I didn't leave the yard. <laughs> I was, yeah. I didn't go on the road, but still, um, I got to learn real quick. The, uh, the challenge it is to, uh, to park those things and drive those things around and let alone having two or three on the back of your truck. So mad respect, Eric, for that, first of all. <laughs> so classic blue collar guy, but then you also made a pivot from a more kind of traditional, conventional way of looking at investing investing in finances to what we like to call here on, on Blue Collar Money, accepting responsibility for your own financial future. And uh, I'm excited to hear more about that story as well. But if you don't mind, just start sharing a little bit, if you would. We'd love to hear a little bit about your faith background. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Is it something that you discovered at, you know, after when, you know, when did you come to faith? Was it high school when you were young or was it older? Well, I grew up in the church. Um, my mom, okay. my mom also grew up in the church. So it was kind of just a given thing for her. And, uh, she was always <laughs> very devout and still is. Um, she played the piano at church and she still does. Um, and, uh, Sunday was just a given. We were going <laughs> to church. <laughs> that was my mom's point of view. It was not my dad's. Dad stayed at home. I mean, he was a great guy, but uh, didn't really, didn't believe. So, mm -hmm. so, but uh, I was saved, I believe, around eight years old. I really don't know the oh, wow. point in time. Um, I can remember where I was sitting and all that. I could probably figure out how old I was, but <laughs> yeah, I think it's funny. A lot of people know the exact date and time and they can really pinpoint it. I don't, you know, I know I've been saved since I was a little kid, but uh my faith journey, I've described it a lot of times as a roller coaster ride. I, you know, I, I do high school ministry now, so I'm always sitting with the teenagers at, at our church and, uh, you know, going through scripture and, and whatever we have to do. I'm just one of the leaders there. And uh, I've described it many times as a roller coaster ride. There's been plenty of times in my life where I was on highs and, and really felt close to God and uh, life was going well. You should, I could say, you know, yeah. Whether whether I was regularly reading the Bible or or just consciously thinking about God regularly, <laughs> and then plenty of other times where I was just being an idiot and and really down and depressed or whatever it was, you know. Yeah. So I imagine that's the same for a lot of Christians, but I could definitely see the ups and downs in my life. So, um, yeah. but. I mean, to continue on, my, I said there was a big catalyst in my life when I turned 15. Um, mm. My dad had been diagnosed with cancer at that point in time and mm. had finally started coming to church regularly with us. I mean, he had, he would always come on Easter and Christmas and times like that. He, he was never super antagonistic towards it, but uh, he finally started coming shortly after his diagnosis. And uh, wow. when he was 15, he finally made the decision to wow to follow Jesus. And I remember the day he walked up front when they, when we did altar calls at that point in time at our church. Yeah. And, uh, 
Boy, for a punk 15-year-old kid who wasn't living a very good life, I broke down crying and ran across the church over my mom, and it was pretty impactful. Wow. So, um, when I talk to people about the difference between what a person looks like when they are a Christian and when they're not, I think my dad's a great example because when he wasn't a Christian, he was still a really good guy. I mean, he would help out anybody very well spoken and, and intelligent and um we would always be helping one of his co-workers or something doing something mm. but he always expected something in return he really did he yeah. truly expected something in returns like that guy owes me and he wasn't bashful about it at all <laughs> yeah there was a catalyst there there was a change when he became a christian that expectation dropped and i don't mm. know if he did it consciously or not but he quit expecting so much in return you know wow. it was more like i'm just doing this out of the graciousness of my heart and so when i've talked to people about the difference between a christian or a non-christian like like well i've got a good example in my dad i can't tell you in myself i've, mm -hmm. I've seen the roller coaster ride in myself mm -hmm. as a christian but i couldn't really tell you what it was like before i was a christian um, i was just a little kid so Anyway, that, so that's a little bit about my faith journey. Now I'm, wow. like I said, I'm in the high school ministry and I love doing it. Just did it mm -hmm. last night. We're up late last night. And <laughs> well, PW and I are very familiar with uh, with high school or student ministry. We're both both guys who've been uh, involved in Young Life, yeah. um, which is a ministry to to students. And uh, man, we can appreciate your your heart for them. That's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've got three teenagers now so wow <laughs> and then i've got two more coming up here before too long so uh, i'm my pull, my goal is to at least be in it as long as they're in, okay. in high school so i've got How, i've got quite a few age, what are the age of your kids yeah. let's see 11 12 13 15 and 17 wow yeah. oh, my <laughs> oh my goodness dude that's whew. What we a blessing. In, we packed them in there as quick as we could. Yeah, you did. <laughs> a year Sorry. difference between each of them? That's uh yeah, good night. Yeah, not much. That's intense. <laughs> wow. So how long have you been married? Oh boy. This is 19 years this year. Oh wow. That's awesome. That's great. And we started having the first one when <clears throat> when I was 21. So we just wow. It was our intention from day one to have them as quick as we can so that when they move out, we're still healthy and strong and, and can enjoy <laughs> a little bit of freedom mm. once they've moved out. That was the goal anyway. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> That's too funny that you, wow. I love that. So wait, so you were, when were you married then? 19. I was 19 years old. Wow. Yep. And your wife was around the same age. She was 21. Yep. Wow. We've known each other since we were, I don't know, seven years old, something like that in, in church. That's where we met in church. So, yeah. Oh man, <laughs> that you, you remind me of my grand, that's like close to my grandparents' story. They knew each other growing up in church. We're married. I think when they were like 18 or 19, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and had kids early, but, uh, but it's interesting. I don't meet many people who would say they wanted to get started early so that later on, they would sure. be healthy. I, most people actually like myself and my wife, you know, waited for four years right. to kind of have fun together before 
having to, uh, to have kids, you know, and I hear a lot of people saying that. So, man, that's, that's, uh, that's awesome. We, uh, we live in a Catholic community. I'm not Catholic, but, uh, Mm -hmm. because of that, there's a lot of children out here. (laughs) I'd say the average family's got six or seven, maybe 10 kids, you know, so we, we fit right in. (laughs) That's too uh, funny. Uh, But I would say that, yeah, we are probably, if not the youngest um, parents out Mm. here. So Mm. a lot of, a lot of the families out here, 20 years older than us, or uh, parents are 20 years older than us. So, yeah. Were you always kind of looking toward a blue collar type of career? Did you grow up in, like, was your dad involved in kind of blue collar work? Sure. Um, I'm curious about, okay. Okay. So you always saw yourself doing something that would require, you know, physical labor. Yeah. Yeah. When my dad, he was uh, an electrician. Um, He worked for Boeing, which is a big aircraft company. I'm sure most people have heard of it, but yeah. uh, um, So he, yeah, he was, did all sorts of small electrical repair work, built computers and was always mm. soldering something or designing something. He had very much a an engineer brain, so huh. I grabbed grasped onto that. Um, I built a power supply with him once. We designed the whole thing from the ground up. We even acid etched the circuit board. I mean, no way, literally from the ground up. We we built every aspect of it because that was my dad. He he knew how to do that wow. stuff. Mm. I never really learned it that well. I've, mm-hmm. I've certainly retained a lot and, and have been able to use it a lot in life from yeah. rewiring houses to fixing pr- problems on cars, you know, whatever it, that stuff comes easy to me. And so my goal or plan straight out of high school was to become an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, uh, college and I didn't agree. So <laughs> <laughs> we hear that a lot on this show. We get it. <laughs> and so uh, at what age did you start driving? 20 you know, mm. it was shortly after we got married okay i was working at walmart of all places and not making any money and uh i, I can remember as a little kid i had a a to scale truck and trailer and i played with that thing all the time and i remember saying i want to drive a truck one day mm. i don't know that's cool that really stuck in my brain the whole time but uh when i saw that I could go to school and get my CDL. I was like, I'm doing that. And that sounds like fun. And, mm-hmm. and we didn't have kids at that point. So mm-hmm. really, I think our plan at that time was to just get an over the road draw a uh, job and, and both of us go hit the road. We didn't have a house mm-hmm. at the time we were just renting and, uh, mm-hmm. and young and dumb. So that, that was the plan. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I wow. left, left Walmart and went, uh, to the truck driving school that I massively overpaid for now that I know a little bit more about how to get a CDL and, uh, <laughs> but it all worked out, got the license. And, uh, shortly thereafter got a job. It was ended up being a local job because while I was there, my wife found out she was pregnant and mm. that put an immediate halt to our idea of going on the road. So, mm. <laughs> so I yeah. had a, a local job and, Hmm. started hauling cattle feed of all things so. <laughs> that's great so most yeah. of the work you're doing right now i i mean is it they call what are they called the last mile the last where mile. it comes 
comes into the distribution center and then it gets taken to its. Oh, are you, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what LTL is. I mean, okay. The, the, the city drivers, which I started out doing that, go around, pick up all the stuff from generally speaking, small businesses. But I mean, frankly, it could be anything. Mm -hmm. I, I basically tell people if it fits on the trailer, we're all in it. Um, okay. It could be hazmat, whatever it is, but, uh, they go around in the larger trailers, more of the 53 footers that you would normally see and they unload them and, and then load them. So they're delivering stuff and picking stuff up all day long. Mm -hmm. They come back to the terminal and all the little trailers, the 28 foot trailers are backed into the dock and uh, they'll fill up a whole trailer that needs to go to Texas or a whole trailer that needs to go to Kansas city or a whole trailer that needs to go to Denver. Mm -hmm. And then, us road drivers or line haul drivers come in and grab those. Generally speaking, most of the time it's just two trailers because mm -hmm. those can go anywhere on the highway. And sometimes it's three. Um, like if specifically for us being in Wichita, we can go straight to Kansas city and back mm -hmm. and uh, haul triples. So I've done that a lot. And, um, nice. Are you so, normally home at the end of the day? Yeah. Yep. Oh, how they good. design most of the time with LTL, how it's designed is we will like Denver is a, one, a full day drive from me to which from Wichita to Denver, it's a full day drive. So ideally, you have a Denver driver and a Wichita driver, and we meet halfway. We unhook our trailers and just swap trailers, and then we turn around and go back home. Okay. That's 90% of line haul runs road runs, whether it's FedEx, UPS, mm. Old Dominion, uh, mm -hmm. they're all basically mm. the same. And we just swap trailers and turn around and go home. So you're home the same day or night. Most of yeah. these runs are probably done at night. So okay. for me, I, cool. I actually, I go out and lay down in a hotel and then turn around and come back because the, the terminal that I meet don't, they don't have enough drivers to, uh, to have a meet, a meat setup. So okay. yeah. you ever notice a lot of semi trailers have, we are hiring permanently painted on the trailer. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, I've seen it. Yep. It's because there's a high demand for drivers. And, and I imagine un unless uh, automated driving becomes a, a prominent thing, I imagine there will always be a uh, shortage for drivers. So, but I do see that kind of changing, which I mean, I guess that can kind of be leading into the conversation here. That that's been one reason why I've started taking investing so seriously. Mm. Okay, hold on before you get there, because <laughs> we do want to get there. Sure. But I'm just curious when you guys started out and and you're starting to drive a truck, and you know, think of your 20s for example. You know, what was your what was your kind of uh, plan for financially? You know, what I mean, what what was your way of thinking about it? Did you have, like, did you, did you get a 401k or did you have an IRA that you started contributing to? Or yeah. What was your thinking in terms of financial management, stewardship, you know, all that? Sure. Um, well, I started driving when I was 20 and I had no plan. <laughs> Every ounce of the dollars I made went to paying for life, you know? Um, yeah. And I had zero plan. And I didn't even really think about it. And then it wasn't too long that I, I think I was 21 or 22 when I um, got my second job. 
as a driver. And uh, that's where I had the option for 401k and, uh, and I took it and said, yeah, it makes perfect sense because they had a match in their policy. I don't remember what the match was, but it was, it was significant. That company that I worked for, they, their benefits were better than their hourly pay or their salary. Um, Hmm. So I was really there ultimately for health insurance and for the 401k profit sharing um, is what, I was in because I was in management for most of my time there. So Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, as a 21 year old at that point in time, 401k was good for me because I had zero discipline and Hmm. it automatically came out of my check. I didn't ever look at it. I just ignored it. Hmm. Even at that point in time, I didn't care about investing. I mean, so that, was one reason why the 401k was so good for me. Mm-hmm. And, and then, like I said, it transitioned into profit sharing. So it was a little different setup, but anyway, it's uh, if I didn't have that, I don't think I'd be where I am today with my investments mm. because I wouldn't have saved it. Mm-hmm. So, so I've got mixed emotions on 401ks and whether or not they're good or not. And frankly, mm-hmm. I can I can tell you that they are, and they're not. Yeah, <laughs> it really depends on your mindset. It really does. Depends Agree. on depends on your mindset on and, and how you're going to use it, whether or not it's a good thing or not. So, <laughs> totally, I would say I, I I feel similar. The the IRA that I had, and uh, and four hundred one k. Well, actually, no, it was a yeah, it was an IRA and a and a pension um, through Young Life. Man, if I had not had those and been putting money into them, I I wouldn't have uh, had, yeah, had the cash to be able to start doing something different and think differently. It really provided fuel for uh, for a new plan, for sure. Absolutely. That's great. You know, I think there was, a, there was a, an older fellow there. Of course, I was 20, so he probably wasn't that old. But uh, <laughs> he was definitely 20 or 30 years older than I was. And I remember finding out that he didn't have he never took the option for the 401k. And while I didn't really have a plan at the point in time, I can still remember thinking that sounds dumb to me. Why aren't you setting aside money for when you retire to get out of here? I mean, you can't do this forever. At that point in time, I was driving a truck, but it was hard physical delivery type stuff. I mean, it was heavy lifting. I mean, what it was was delivering milk. Um, so we, our, our local dairy company there bottling milk up and, uh, we were out putting it on the shelves mm. and, uh, it was heavy work, hard mm. work and 10, 12 hours a day. It, I still have back pain today from that job. And wow. this guy was every bit of 50 years old, I would imagine, and still doing it. And wow. you can see him walking into work in the morning not walking well. It took him hours to get loose enough to where he could do his job. He's wow. going to be crippled. He's going to be crippled, probably is today, and and no type of financial planning at all to wow. support him in life. I've, I've heard you guys talk about it many times about the idea of where retirement came from, from the coal miners, and that certainly applies to yeah. other industries we have today and, and for for guys like that who have made no plan, they're kind of mm. screwed. 
Yeah. Kind of just screwed. I don't know what he's going to do. He's going to, he's going to have to find another job that he doesn't, he'll be the Walmart greeter sitting there on the, on the chair when you walk in the door because Mm -hmm. you can't afford not to. So. So were you, were you thinking retirement? Like, is that what you're, what you're, you know, at that point in time, were you thinking like, okay, I'm saving this money up. I'm putting this into a 401k, getting a great deal with this match from the company even the uh, the shared equity thing that's that's a that's really cool. Were you thinking like, yeah, so hopefully at some point I'll be able to retire. So in case I'm hurt or crippled in some way, I'll be able. To, was that your thought at the time, or was it kind yeah. of still kind of yeah, ambiguous? That, I would say that was probably my thought. Like I said, I didn't put a lot of thought into it. Yeah. I just knew that this is what I need to do because this is what I've been taught to do. Um, yeah, my my dad he had a lot of retirement money um set aside and well and I didn't talk about it my my dad ended up passing away from cancer and the money that he had saved for all that time for his retirement and the life insurance that he that that we got from him passing all of that really was able to keep my mom in the same we didn't have to move or anything we just wow life continued on just without dad there which wow. that sucked, but, but the rest of it, nothing really changed. I mean, what, what a gift. Yeah. What a gift absolutely. from your father. Oh absolutely. my gosh. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind the whole wow. time. Like, well, I mean, I know I've got to do this. I didn't have a plan, but, and that, that's why the 401ks can be a good thing. So, because it kind of just forces you to, to do something, even if you don't have a plan in mind. So, so yeah. yes. I would say retirement idea was probably the, the, the route I was going down, but I didn't have a, a set plan by any means. So um, yeah. after I left that job, I had to do something with that 401k. Um, and uh, I remember sitting down, I think it was Edward Jones, sat down with an advisor to make a plan, if you will, with what to do with that money. And even at that point in time, it's like, I don't know. I don't even want to know how much is in there. I just, <laughs> I just want to ignore it and let it build or do whatever it does. That was still my, my mindset, mm. even when I started in the LTL industry. Um, so one of the things that uh, you just said, you know, you just didn't, you didn't want to forget about it. Yeah. And, and I think what you're describing is so many people's experience with money. I know that's my wife. My wife would tell me that all the time. Her parents would just say, just put money away and forget it's even there. And then the magic of compounding interest and blah, 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 we'll take care of it. And then you'll have this, I don't know, huge amount that you'll somehow be able to live off of. Would you say that it was your perspective on that was based on your own feeling of, of, of not being able to understand money or investing or, you know, kind of leaving it up to the experts because you might be like you, you said you were undisciplined maybe and, and weren't, you know, th- this helped you to save. Was that kind of your motivation for that approach at that time? Yeah, more or less. I mean, it's not that we were super undisciplined. Um, although I certainly was, and I still probably am, but, uh, I was just broke. <laughs> I mean, frankly, we just didn't make a whole heck of a lot of money. And like I said before, we started having kids early. And we bought a house early. I think when I was only 21, I think when we bought our first house and uh, we just didn't have a lot of excess 
most mm-hmm. we were basically check to check, even though I was still putting money away in that 401k. And I really just didn't even think about it because it automatically came out. And I basically had it in my mind that that money was not accessible. Yeah. And, you know, which ultimately, ultimately you can touch it, but you shouldn't, you really shouldn't. They, mm-hmm. they put penalties in place for a reason and and they're good. They're good reasons. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Cause I'm looking at the wall behind you and it says Febro's capital. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And that's, that's you. So <laughs> that's right. me. Uh, well, an apartment syndication, by the way, just syndication mm-hmm. or joint venture or I'll buy myself if I can. So it, it, we just, I'm in the goal of acquiring them. However, I, however I can, you know, and I'm still driving a truck. So, so what was the impetus to like, okay, I'm driving a truck. Sure. I, I have the 401k because, you know, because it's there, it's safe. You know, we're going to, we're not going to even mess with penalties or dealing with that, but there was something, something that happened that said, you know, I really need to become independent of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, when I started driving on the road, um, Kansas can be pretty boring. So I had to find something to do and podcasts became very prevalent and audio books. I started listening, listening, listening to books on a regular basis. Um, and, uh, I ran across bigger pockets one day, um, and doing, doing the work that I've done in the past, I guess I can go clear back to high school. I, I worked for a property manager at one point. Um, and then I transitioned over and started working for a trim carpenter. Um, so I had done a lot of home remodels or just fixing up or doing brand new builds. So I kind of was familiar with real estate at, at a very early age. I'd, mm. I'd say I was probably 17, 18 years old when I was doing that stuff. And I've always just been handy. So anyway, I, I, I dabbled in that at an early age and we bought our first house when I was 21 and it needed a lot of work, which we just did ourselves. So I was very familiar with how to do all that. So when I ran across bigger pockets and I'm still not making a heck of a lot of money at this point, I'm making more money than I ever have and starting to see a little bit of uh, extra there. And then I, like I said, I ran across bigger pockets. I was like, man, this is, this is a way I could maybe start flipping houses or something on the side and making, making money. So, and just, I'm sorry, real quick, just to make sure our listeners. So bigger pockets is the name of a podcast that focuses on real estate investing. That's how I got started down this road myself was listening to bigger pockets. And, uh, and so just, just want to clarify that in case folks didn't, didn't know what that was. Yeah, definitely check it out. It's, I I actually haven't listened to it in a long time, but, uh, it's uh it's 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 what caught my interest and started the fire. <laughs> so I uh anyway. So if for folks that are getting into real estate, as you like I just sat at dinner last night and a friend of ours sells um he sells heavy trucks, like his whole his whole lot is just giant dumb trucks and movers and that kind of stuff. And yeah, but we ended up talking about you know, the truck driver shortage, which you just had mentioned, you know, that they're always hiring and they just, they went from electronic or from manual logs, to electronic logs. Yep. And he's, and he was explaining to me that it's pushing out a lot of the old timers, a lot of the 50 and up guys, you know, because it just makes them stay on the road longer. 
so they're end up, they end up losing, you know, that kind of age group. And a lot of the younger guys are only certified on the automatic truck. So that he just started listing all the reasons why the trucking industry is taking a beating. But the other thing he shared, which I thought was really kind of mind blowing, like we all kind of got stuck on that part of the conversation. He said, you get paid $3 a mile. And I was like, okay, if we do the math and we take out the gas that there are truck drivers driving around the U S that are making between two and $300,000. Is that accurate? Well, it probably depends on the region you're in. And he okay. sounds like he's talking about, uh, uh, being an owner operator. If he's at that dollar point, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Yeah. But I would say LTL is one of the highest paid in, um, trucking and, I have zero responsibility when it comes to fuel or tires or any kind of maintenance. Okay. I'm a company driver. They take care of all of that. I I literally get a paycheck and uh, good health insurance. Okay. And it is not uncommon to make six figures. Yeah. So, you know, especially the guys pulling triples. I imagine most of those guys are pulling in 120,000 a year, something like that. Wouldn't, uh, so yeah, it's one of the highest paid in the industry, which is why I went over to road driving because most of the road drivers are making more than, than, uh, city drivers. So, uh, that's, and it's interesting that you you're sharing this because that's one of the things that we're, we're not trying to point people down this road, but we're just trying to make people aware that, um, a lot of the quote unquote, like typical, what we think blue collar industry jobs, are, are quite lucrative. Yeah. If you find, if you kind of find the niche um, and it's sometimes necessary to have that kind of job, I think it's very necessary to have that kind of job to then pivot into something else. Like you can stay in that job and, and earn a great living. I think, you know, there, are, there are some downsides, you know, to what your body can physically handle as you were kind of describing earlier. Yeah. Um, but so that's another piece we want to put into the puzzle is if, if you're considering a pivot, it's really helpful to have a, to be a high earner. It doesn't, you know, we have oh, yeah. some, some folks that are white collar earners and I'm sure, you know, they're doing fine, but uh, I, I know we have some blue collar folks that are listening to the podcast that are, they are high earners. And, and this is kind of where I want, this is kind of where I feel like the story really starts for them is listening to you say, okay, if I'm a blue collar worker and I'm a high earner and maybe I do have a 401k, uh, maybe I do have life insurance and I've set myself up. I still have to make some kind of pivot. I still have to make a shift in my mind to, to move into cash flow. Um, what was the first house that became that cash flow for you? Was that a long time ago? Well, you know, like I said, I did get interested in bigger pockets and thought about doing single family flips and, and, or, um, the burr method where you're buying rehabbing and, uh, keeping it for cash flow. but I never did. I just frankly didn't have time. I mean, in the trucking industry, you're working a lot of hours. Mm. I mean, like, like you're alluding to with the electronic logs, for me, it was a good thing because I was working more hours than I legally even was supposed to be. When electronic logs came into play, it forced the company to cut me off, but they would still push me to that limit. There's mm-hmm. plenty of days where I, I drove 10 hours and 59 minutes and 11 is the max mm-hmm. and, and, and worked 13 and a half hours because 14 was the max. 
you know, uh, and I, that's kind of always been the case. So you don't have a whole heck of a lot of free time when you're working 70 hours a week. Yeah. And, uh, and you still have a family at home and five kids and a whole bunch of activities and ball games and whatever else to go to. Yeah. So I didn't ever want to neglect that. Although I, I think I have a little bit, but, uh, so anyway, to answer the question, I never did get a cash flow house. Okay. I really never did. Um, that has always been in the back of my mind to do that. But when I started going down the rabbit hole of, of investing in real estate for cash flow, I ultimately ran across apartment syndications and buying the larger deals. And for me, it was, it was safer to really sum it up. It was safer than buying a single family house. One of the big reasons was because if I have 20 tenants as compared to the one, if I lose three or four of them, I'm still cash flowing and the place yeah. is still making money. If I lose the one in the house, then I have to pay for it. And while I was making more money, I still couldn't afford to pay for two house payments, mine and, and my rental. Sure. So I didn't want to get myself in that position. Um, and then my business partner who I've known since high school, uh, I started talking to him about it and he's been in the accounting world for his entire career after high school. And uh, so this idea of getting into apartments was made perfect sense to him. And so I said, well, if we're going to do this, I, I want to do it this way. So let's figure out how we can buy an apartment as opposed to buying a single family house. Yeah. Because the apartment, number one, is going to get us to our goal of getting out of our industries faster, which I, I love driving a truck, but uh, I don't like working 60, 70 hours a week. And mm. I would prefer to be home more than I am. Mm. Um, so, and it's abusive to the body. So I have a lot of reasons why I want to get out of the truck. Yeah. Um, and so, apartments are going to get me there faster. So that was the goal. And, and so, that's kind of the, that's, that's part of the reason why we decided to, to go this route. So when I, when I hear like syndication, when I hear apartment syndication to me, it, it feels like the deep end of the pool. So like when I think single family home, I'm like, Oh, I can, I can just wrap my head around that one door. Right. Um, can you describe to people like who've never heard that term before, like what's that, what, what that means? It's basically a group of people coming together to buy an apartment. I mean, you could do the same thing with a house, I guess. Um, you know, there, there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can do it through a joint venture, which is how we bought our, bought our first one. Um, and that's where it's just a legal structure. So okay. we, there was three of us involved, three partners and depending on how much money we put in to it, you got that percentage of ownership and then all three of us, we manage it together. You know, if one guy is going on vacation, then the other two have to take up the slack. And so it works pretty well. And, okay. but we all three trust each other. We've all three known each other for a very long time. And so it works well that way. When you get into a syndication, it's when you likely have a lot more investors that don't know each other quite so well. And so you want a legal structure in there that gives one group or just one person, the general partnership, most control over the investment. 
So they're the guys making the decisions every day. They're the ones dealing with the tenants if you're if they're managing it themselves. And then you have limited partners, which are really just putting money in it as an investment. You, you could look at it as a 401k. And frankly, mm-hmm. you could take your 401k and use it to invest, or you could yeah. take your IRA and use it to invest as a limited partner. And really they they don't have they're called limited partners for a reason. Their risk is limited. Um, they are, they're not signing on debt. You know, it, it really is to be viewed as a very passive investment. You, the yeah. only, the only thing a limited partner really needs to do is vet the person they're investing with. Because yeah, I've heard, yeah. I've heard this described as, as being a passenger on an airliner. Yeah. So, and, and that the syndicators who, who started the syndication are kind of like the pilots. Yep. Um, but you're getting on that investment train or plane or whatever, and you're being transported. So, so you're not in control of it. You're passive, like you said, but you're also entrusting yourself and your money to someone to absolutely earn you money. Yeah. yeah. The goal is for everyone to make money. I mean, as a general partner, I want to make money in the deal, you know, so there's, there's different ways that the general partnership makes money. And then obviously my goal is to make sure I make enough money that my limited partners make a good return as well. So, you know, and, and I've always viewed apartments as you're buying a business. I mean, that's really what it is. You're buying a small business and it cash flows. So, and that, that's really how I view it. I don't, it is real estate and it has a lot of benefits being in real estate for tax reasons and, and, and whatever else. But, uh, I, I really just view it as a small business. Do you, can you talk about vet? Cause I'm, I'm trying to like what we try and do for, for ourselves and for the listeners is try and put the constellation together, like all the moving parts and people. Did you, you obviously had longtime relationships with uh, the guys that you were investing with your general partners. Yeah. How did you vet your lawyer? who set all this up. Did you need to find a real estate lawyer or do most general practitioners know how to do this? For the joint venture, there's probably a lot of lawyers that can, that can handle that. Okay. They still want to find a lawyer who specializes in real estate and there's a lot of them. Okay. Because real estate is such a, I mean, it affects literally everybody. Everybody needs a place to live. So okay. there's a lot of lawyers that uh, have experience in real estate, but I mean, how the average person could find one if they don't have any connections. Uh, just do a Google search in your area and and start interviewing them. I mean, you're hiring them to do a job. Yeah. So you should go sit down in front of them and have a conversation. And if you get along well with the guy, it's, maybe it's a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, for me, I go to church with a lawyer. Um, and uh, so I just cornered him one day and, and asked him a little <laughs> bit about it. And, and, uh, he said, yeah, that's something that I could set up the joint venture and, uh, I could help you do that. He helped set up my LLC for, for the company that we created. And so okay. that, that was a simple way that we got started. Um, but then there's lawyers that will specialize in syndications. Okay. Um, you guys are doing a joint, doing joint ventures and syndications, right? Yeah. Okay. Is it a different lawyer that set up a syndication for you? It likely will be. I mean, yeah, it definitely is. Um, Okay. Because like I said, there's syndication attorneys that that's, that's all they do. Okay. And and they're so prevalent in it and they've got a lot of the, 
paperwork already prepared that they can just adjust specific to your purchase. Um, and so there's one place that's real simple to go to syndicationsattorney.com. Um, I think that's the name of it. Okay. We'll put that link in the, in the yeah. show notes. Can you say that again? Syndications attorney syndications or syndication attorneys. Okay. I think it's been a while since I've been to it, but uh, okay. yeah, it's pretty simple to get to. And that's one good place to start anyway. I mean, they're a nationwide. So you had said for your joint venture, it's usually two, three people, you know, trust is a major factor. Mike and I have talked about getting into this as well. I don't trust anybody. I trust Mike. So that's my list. You know, I have maybe somebody else, but with syndications, how do you vet the investor? Because like I have, we have these amazing financial advisors and they, they have a rule. The only rule that they ever told us about was the no asshole rule. And I was like, what, what does that mean? He's like, we don't accept any assholes as clients. And he's like, we work with anybody, which is kind of funny because for financial advisors, it's usually on money under management. So you want somebody that has a lot of money to work with. And these guys are great because they're like, we'll work with anybody, but you can't be a jerk. Yeah. I mean, there's enough money out there that there's no reason why you shouldn't uh, vet your clients. And uh, I mean, the same could be said for syndication. There's, There's enough people out there wanting to invest in these things. I don't really, I don't want somebody investing their money with me if we can't get along because frankly I have their retirement if you will in my hands yeah now do you uh, spend time with with the like how how do you I'm sure that at some point they find you but then how do you vet them really I guess what I've done it's really just conversations you know certainly they could be lying to me and uh, ultimately they are a jerk I don't know you know I don't know them as well as I know a lot of my friends um, and, and they're a limited partner for a reason because they're very limited in their involvement in the, in the property or the investment or even me, you know, and the less I hear from them, frankly, once we've got the thing going, the better for me, I don't want to be on the phone every day with investors. I'd rather be dealing with the investment and making it profitable. So yeah. the vetting process, I don't know, you know, like with the syndications that I have, been involved in as a limited partner i know the guys that are running the project based on linkedin posts or their facebook posts that they make so i follow them on on different platforms and uh, i've had conversations with them whether it's been on zoom or just on the phone so i've gotten to know them there and some of the people that are also involved in their investing I've talked to. So, you know, I've vetted them in those ways. You know, I Google search their names to make sure they're not criminals or something like that, you know? Okay. So it's not super in depth, but it's in depth enough that I felt comfortable saying, yeah, I, I don't think these guys are just going to take my money and run. Okay. And, and obviously you have to go through a lot of legal paperwork. It's called a private placement memorandum when you're in a syndication and that really, lays out the goal from day one, the business plan, and then the thought of selling. Mm. And so, and how your money is going to be going to work and, and and really how the business plan is going to play out. So if you're going to invest in a syndication, you will have to go through a private placement memorandum 
And like I said, it really lays it out in a very legal and structured way. So if the general partnership decides they want to run away with your money, well, there's there's a lot of uh, legal recourse leverage that the people will have to come back on the guys. So, so someone gives you 25, 50, 100,000, who knows, however much money. Yeah. Then do they, um, do they get quarterly? Uh, is, is it, is it like quarterly disbursements? I'm just curious how the, you know, what that looks like in terms of. Sure. Well, it really yeah. depends. I mean, Cash all flow. of it depends. Every deal is different. So, you know, if you're buying a single family house and you want to flip it, you probably won't see any money until the day you sell. So it yeah. might be a year or two. If you're buying a house to cash flow and rent, you know, you might see money in month one, but you probably need to build your savings up to um, plan for people moving out. So for the first year, you probably don't want to take any distributions yourself as a single family renter just so you can build up enough cash reserves. The same thing applies to apartments. It depends on the situation. We might be buying an apartment that's really run down and isn't cash flowing. And our goal is to fix the thing up and just sell it, you know? Mm. And, and so all the money you put into it might just be at work for the entire time until it's time to sell. And then you'll get one big distribution or, Maybe somebody's buying one that is already stabilized and your your return will probably most likely be lower um, than the first situation I was talking about. And, uh, and you might see distributions as soon as the first quarter. I've heard of people going as soon as the first month. I would say that's probably a very unlikely situation. But uh, it, so it's very deal dependent. Um, you know, the stuff I've looked at, I would say our plan has always been, there would be no distributions for the whole first year. And then it would be quarterly thereafter. And then, and then, uh, you know, either refi after year five and you get a large sum back and you continue owning, just like if you refied your house, you, you don't give it away. You still start making, you, you continue making money on it you're just able to pull a lot of equity out at that point in time. So there's a lot of different ways a syndication can be structured and that private placement memorandum really lays out the plan. Now plans can be changed, you know, market situation might change. And uh, instead of holding the thing for five years after two years, you're like, man, it's hot and we think it's going to go down. So now would be a perfect time to sell. We're going to make the most money if we do it now. So, you know, it's real estate. It changes yeah. all the time. There's, there's no, there's no one way to do it, <laughs> which, which is part of the reason I like it. it you, you can very much customize it to whatever your goals are. And as a limited partner, I mean, you can look at a thousand deals and say, you know, I like how these guys have planned this one and put it together. And I think I'll invest in that one. Has there ever been a time where you, you raise a half million and you had to borrow half a million from a bank? Oh yeah. Banks, banks, a big partner every time. Okay. Bank, you know, we, uh, I have no problem using leverage, getting a mortgage. Um, leverage is just a common way it's referred to in real yeah. estate. Um, bank's a big partner. And frankly, the bank's cheaper money than the investors are. You know, our goal is 8% is my minimum. If I can't make my investors an 8% return, that, that's like my bottom line. If we can't hit that, we're not going to do the deal. Yeah. 
Well, the bank, you can borrow money at like 3%, 4%. So the bank's heck of a lot cheaper money than my investors are. So they're, they're, they're a big factor in it, just like they are in most businesses. Hmm. And uh, so I have no problem using the leverage because you can make your investors more money by using the leverage. And then do you have cash stores to do the upfitting of buildings or are you using like line of credit from a bank usually to do the repair work? Um, yeah. Repair and kind of upfitting or. Sure. Well, sometimes you can finance it in on our joint venture. We financed in some money to do repairs through a syndication. Most likely you're going to raise that money from your investors so that you have easy access to it. The bank likes to uh, tie that money up and make you get approval and, and, and go through draws. Yeah. It might make sense to go that route, but you're always, when you're raising money to, to, to put into a syndication, you know, it's, it's similar when you put 20% down on a house, that's the money that's being raised, you know, so you're really, you're ra- you're raising the down payment, but you're also raising reserves and you're raising the extra money to put into the property to, to improve it so that you can increase cash flow and increase profitability. Uh, that's where, that's where you're going to make your money is increasing the profitability of the property. So we look for properties that are, underperforming they're either mismanaged or they're just they're just not renting at the market rate that they should be maybe deferred maintenance that you can see from the street you can tell that yeah this isn't being kept up as well as it should be so it's it's the uh the value add play is how it's commonly referred to as so forced forced appreciation you know the the more the apartment makes the more it's worth and so if we can increase its value, make it worth more money, that's where investors are making a return. In a, in a 30,000 foot view, that's that's what an apartment syndication is. It's, it's yeah. the goal of increasing the value to, to make it more profitable. You said Fabrics Capital is the holding company, but you said you guys also take care of the management. Yeah. And that's really, you know, I guess when I first started getting into it, didn't realize just how separate that is because you can very much hire a third party property management company to manage the asset. The problem with that is, is nobody's going to take care of it as well as you are the owner. Yeah. So if you have the ability to manage it yourself, I'd say that's the way to go. Um, Separate company or same company? Yeah. You want a separate, a separate LLC set up. Yeah. You, you don't want your management company, your asset management company to be the same as your property management company. Ultimately, you end up starting two businesses is what ultimately happens. Is one under the other or they're literally completely literally separate? Literally completely separate. Okay, because, that's that's what I want to know. That's the, great. The, the property management company can manage 50 apartments and 20 of them aren't owned by us at all. Yeah, so, that's uh, great. Um, so yeah, you'd want it completely separate. That's great. Talk just for a minute about, because what I loved hearing when we first spoke on the phone was the the different roles that you and your partners are playing in the syndication. Um, I thought it was really fascinating to hear how each of you are kind of leveraging your unique perspectives and gifting, if you will, within the syndication. Can you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, well, you know, I already, I already work 50, 60, 70 hours a week doing my day job. 
and uh, that doesn't leave a lot of time for me to be able to do everything in apartments. You know, you're stretched really thin. So bringing on other people to help in my situation, I couldn't do it any other way. I have to. Mm. Um, So my business partner, he, like I said before, he's in accounting, um, does tax accounting. He's, he's been in public uh, accounting for many years, Um, Mm. recently just transitioned out of it into kind of doing his own side stuff with real estate and me. And anyway, Mm. so he's the numbers guy. You know, if I find a property that I've, been out talking to brokers or whatever about and that I like, or I just drove by and I thought that one might be, looks interesting. We should check into it and and try to find the ownership. So I'll tell him about it and then he can get on to the state or County websites and try to find the ownership. And he's the numbers guy. He's on the computer a lot. I'm learning the business through reading books and listening to podcasts and coming up with different ideas. And I mean, it's podcasting and books that, that taught me how syndications work. So, you know, not, and I've taught him a lot from that perspective. Mm. So, you know, my, you know, behind me, I've got the, the lifetime cash flow meetup that we do. That was because I, of me, it was my goal to mm. get our name out there and and be telling people what we're doing, finding investors, and so we hold a meetup once a month um, in our local community where we invite people to come in and just learn more about real estate, learn how they can get involved, whether they want to help us buy a property or or just invest passively. You know, it doesn't matter to me. I just want to meet people in the industry. And uh, so that's really been my focus and his focus is numbers. I didn't throw the properties at him and, and uh, say, here, is this really going to work? And he can take it to his spreadsheets and say, all right, this is, yeah, this one makes sense. And here's what I think uh, we could do to um, give an investor a return. And here's what that return looks like. And, and now I go in and I look at the property and think, all right, this is this, this, and this needs to be done, whether they need patios redone or, or we need to put in new flooring in these, or we just need to do a whole kitchen gut remodel to make it good enough that we can get market rents. So we work well in that regard. Yeah. I was going to say you, I, I remember you sharing the fact that you're kind of the guy who's you're like, you've said before, you're, you can't, you're good with your hands um, you, you, you're comfortable, you know, building things or, you know, looking at things from a mechanical structural perspective and, and, uh, um, analyzing it or, or yeah. And, and so you've gone to the, these different units, uh, apartments, buildings, and, and been able to look at them and, and help determine whether they'd be a good investment based on some of your analysis. Absolutely. There. You know, yeah. and we started small, our first one, it was a 24 unit. And I say that's small. I know that might sound big to some people and it's, it used to sound big to me, but it was really, you, you go on there with the mindset that it's just a big house hmm. and every single unit is a place where somebody's going to live. So what needs to be done for it to be right. Hmm. And so that you can demand the rent that it, that you want to get. And so don't overthink it, I guess is what I'm getting at. <laughs> you know, we all, we Great. can all get caught up in the analysis paralysis. Ultimately you just go in there. If you see cracked sidewalks and, and damaged gutters, 
whether it's a 50 unit apartment complex or a single family house, it's got to be fixed. So it, just don't overthink it. Yeah. But you know, if you're, if you're not mechanically inclined or if you don't know home repair, hire a inspector. I mean, it's no mm-hmm. different than buying a house. It, it costs more money, but it's not a whole heck of a lot different. So yeah. it's just one more the zero. One thing I'd want to throw in just for our listeners is like, because this is happening, like my phone's been ringing off the hook. Uh, somebody called me uh, two, two days ago to repair their fridge. I have no experience repairing a fridge, but it, theirs went out and the repair guy can't get there for 10 days. And, and so we're fine. I'm seeing more and more and more that every company is busy and you're not going to get somebody to even come out for, I mean, in a timely manner for inspections or repairs or this, that. So if you are wanting to dive into this, you probably need to have realistic expectations of what life is like in a bubble. Absolutely. Even the guys that suck are working. Sure. Sure. You know, and (laughs) just to speak to that a little bit, there's, there's a, there's a certain element about buying a 20 unit property that is more challenging than buying a hundred unit property. And the reason for that is, is the management aspect that you're talking about right there with my 20 unit property. I really can't afford to hire a full-time maintenance guy. I really can't. Oh yeah. We don't make enough money to do that, to justify that. If it was a hundred unit property, I would have a full-time maintenance guy on site all the time. Hmm. I wouldn't be relying on contractors or just your average handyman to come out and fix that broken fridge. I'd have a maintenance guy on site that could hit day one. And so from a management perspective and a hundred units is about where that cutoff is, it's easier. So Hmm. the 20, the 50 unit properties, if you're going to self-manage, yeah, you can do it. It's challenging. I'm not saying it's not worth it. I certainly learned a ton with our 24 unit and I'm glad I've done it because I understand what property managers go through because I'm doing it. And so when, if, and when we use a third party, I don't know if we ever will, we might just grow our property management company and do it ourselves because I mean, you're, you're giving away profits if you're hiring somebody else. And I'd sure. like to keep as much profits as I can. So you said before that you had, and I'm leading to a question to kind of wrap, wrap up here maybe. Um, but you said that really it was the idea that you wanted to, um, you, you didn't want to spend your whole, all of your time, the majority of your time working and not spending enough, as much time with your family. And you saw this as being an avenue to be able to gain more time, you know, through building cash flow, uh, where you'll have a more passive uh, role in it so that you can spend more time with family, uh, save your body a little bit, you know, as, as you as you age. Speak a little bit about, and maybe it wasn't technically this right away, but what was, what was kind of, how did your faith play into that decision making process? And and if not initially, because I can see how maybe initially that maybe it didn't to some extent. Maybe it just it just was more um, about practicality in some way, you know. But since then, I know I haven't having talked to you. I know since then, faith has begun to play more and more of a role in it for you in terms of your perspective with this. Can you share just a little bit about what that looks like or what ha- that has looked like for you? I mean, my faith has definitely played a role in, in property management. 
for sure. I mean, hmm. when we first when I first started getting into this, it, a big reason for it was like say it was just financial. Uh, it was my goal to 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 have enough cash flow that I wouldn't that it would replace my driving job and I could just do this full time because believe mm-hmm. me, it's a full time job. You're not just hopping into real estate and uh, and and going and sitting on the beach. <laughs> you're, you're transitioning <laughs> right. from a full-time job over here where you get a W-2 paycheck to a full-time job over here where you get cash flow. So yeah. it, it's, it's, it's no easy, quick money, rich, you know, the, the rich quick money scheme. It's uh, So you're not enjoying that four hour work week that uh, <laughs> from that famous book that came out. Okay. Yeah. No, not yet. Anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not saying you couldn't get there if yeah. you structure things properly. I mean, you could hire a CEO to manage all that if you have enough. So maybe some guys can get there, but I would say most of us probably won't. And I don't know that I want to build it that big, honestly. Mm. So I enjoy yeah. doing it My and to, to speak to my faith in it from a property management perspective, like I said, when we first, when I first started doing it, it was really just to make money. Um, as I got deeper into it, you ultimately realize that you are affecting dozens of lives. I mm. mean, like with our, with our smaller property, there's 20 some odd people there that are living there. This is their home and I'm taking care of it. Mm. And depending on how well I take care of it impacts them directly. And yeah. so from a faith perspective, I've been, it's been very, been very grateful that my other partners are also in the faith and we can apply that to how we take care of people because mm-hmm. I don't just look at it as how much money can I make off of this property? I look at it as I, I can help improve these people's lives. You know, yeah, I'm not mm-hmm. super involved in their lives, but I know a lot of stories, you know, yeah. and I, I'm able to go sit down and talk to some of them and, and gain insight in who they are. So that, that's been, mm. that's been eye opening, you know, and I can say, yeah, I'm, I've met some operators who uh, don't care at all and, <laughs> and they're just in it for high profits and, and you're going to find that in real estate, it's cutthroat business. So some people are going to take the investment and structure it in one way to make it a win-win situation for literally everybody. Mm-hmm. The, the, the seller can win because they get what they want. The buyer can win because we can structure it to make all of our investors money. Or you can do it cutthroat and try to, try to screw the seller and mm. structure it so that the general partnership makes all the money and the limited partners make very minimal. So mm. your ethics mm. play, your ethics play into this all day long. And and that's yeah. why you should vet your general partnership. That, that's, that's why you should know who you're investing with mm. and know how they're doing it. So yeah, the, the onus is on the investor to make sure they're doing that much research. So, yeah. That's great, man. Thank you for that perspective because um, I just, I love your your whole story from how you started from where you were, you leveraged, you know, your time, the margin you had to educate yourself. We talk about that a lot on this podcast is educating yourself and, and 
leveraging, you know, the margin that you have to, to maybe do that. And then you relationships played a huge role, uh, as you were trying to figure out who to partner with, to do this with, um, in a sense, you, at least at this point, I know you're still a little early in the process of, of building this company, but you got the right people in the seat, the right seats, basically through building relationships and trust. Uh, again, relationships, pulling in people who would be, uh, who are interested in investing in it, um, and you making sure they're the right people. And then, uh, then you took action, you know, to pull it all together and, and make it happen with your team. And, uh, and now you're, you're making money for obviously for yourself, for your investors and, uh, and you're, you're beginning to see the impact you're having directly on the people who are, whose lives you're, you're tied to in a sense, being the owner of that building where they live, you know? And now, as you just described, you feel a weight, a sense of responsibility for that, you know? Um, and you're, you're not in it to like get rich quick or anything like that. You're, this is a long-term plan that you've, you've pulled together that you're trying to, um, to utilize and, and, and to, yeah. So I just, I love your heart for that, Eric. I love, um, your blue collar mentality of, uh, of getting it done. And, um, yeah, I think and some of the information you shared today is just unbelievably valuable. I think for, for our folks who are listening, trying to figure out how these pieces fit together and what are some options they could take, except responsibility for their own financial future. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are some, what are some, kind of a, as a last thought, like best resources for people, like you'd mentioned bigger pockets, the podcast, is there, is there a book you would send people to, to get kind of get started wrapping their minds around this? Oh boy. I'd have to look on my, I should have researched that a little bit. I've got so many audio books that I've listened to and, and there's just endless resources on um, podcasts out there that are specific to apartment and syndications and stuff. Okay. I mean, uh, some of the names that really got me involved. If, if, if a person wanted to go to a podcast to learn yeah. a lot about a syndication, Michael Blanc is, is, is a great resource. I learned a ton there. Um, matter of fact, I, he's got a, a, uh, apartment syndication tool that you can purchase from him or maybe it's free. I don't, I don't know. Um, but, uh, it, it, and he'll teach you how to figure out the numbers within the syndication. Um, now, like I said, my business partner, he's a numbers guy, but he'd never done that type of analysis before. So I bought that software, which was pretty cheap and, and gave it to him and said, here, this is the software we need to use to figure out how to structure something. So anyway, Michael Blanc, that, that'd be a great place to start. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of them. Jake and Gino come to mind. Um, Rod Cleef, if you want to go to the mindset and getting your thinking right, go to Rod Cleef. He really, really, uh, and that's the Lifetime Cash Flow podcast, I think is what it's called. Let's see, I think I've got a book here by Rod Cleef How to Create Lifetime Cash Flow Multifamily Properties. So wait, can you hold that up again real quick? Yeah. How do you spell that last name? Oh, K-H-L-E-I-N. Okay. 
So there's a ton of resources. Once you get into the uh, rabbit hole, you will find an endless <laughs> amount of uh, <laughs> of knowledge there. And that's, you know, that's been one of the blessings of being able to uh, do this stuff while I'm driving a truck. And, and I want to say for the person who thinks they can never get into this or they're going too slow, I'm on like year four or five of doing my research in this. Some people will start their research in six months of buying a property. For me, it's five years, you know, everybody's mm -hmm. different. And, and a lot of times I feel like I've gone too slow, um, mm -hmm. but it's just what I've done what I can with what I've got. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think I, I'd never planned on doing property management, but I'm so glad that that's the path God set me on because I've learned a ton within the property management that, mm -hmm. that I can apply that knowledge to a third party doing property management, or I can apply the knowledge to just building my own property management company. So that's awesome. So then folks can, obviously they can visit your website at febroscapital.com. Yep. You, uh, if, if you happen to be in the Wichita, Kansas area, you can reach out and join his, uh, lifetime cash flow meetup. Right. Absolutely. Um, and how, how do you have an email that folks can reach out to you? Yeah, it's just Eric at FebrosCapital.com. So E-R-I-C. Great. Um, and are you, I think you mentioned to me you were, you're actually in the process of looking for investors and, and doing oh, yeah. some deal searches, right? So if someone's yeah. interested in possibly reaching out to be vetted as a potential investor with you, you're, you'd be open to that, right? Oh, yeah. Email or they can call me or text me, whatever. I mean, if, uh, if you want me yeah. to put my phone number out there, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, it's a... Yeah. Uh, 316-640-8163. And uh, yeah, just reach out. Let's have a conversation. I mean, we need to Great. know each other if we're going to be uh, dealing with money. So yeah. I want to I have that phone call and, and and tell you more about what we do and who I am. So that's great. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's definitely the goal. The goal is to buy enough properties that I can stop driving a truck and just focus on the real estate full time and and uh, I don't know, retirement is nowhere in near in, <laughs> in my mind at this point. So, and, and by that, you mean you're, you're looking to, how do I, well, ex why don't you explain your words? What do you mean by that? <laughs> what do I mean by retirement? Well, uh, my goal is to have enough properties to replace my income to the point that I don't have to drive a truck so I can retire from that industry, if you will, mm -hmm. but I'm not quitting working. I'm, I'm going to mm -hmm. work until the day I die because that's what I'm called to do as a Christian. And amen, brother, preach it. Know, I don't have to be a truck driver. I don't have to be in real estate. I maybe I'm doing high school ministry until the day I die. I don't know, but frankly, I'm never going to retire. And you know, my, my goal is to, to, to have enough money to where I don't have to focus on just making money. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to equate that with retirement, but I don't see myself sipping my ties on the beach doing nothing. So <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, more time Man. in the tree stand would be nice, but there you <laughs> go. Oh, PW feels you on that one. He, totally. Well, Oh no, PW, you'd be fishing. Yeah. yeah I'd be fishing. I'd be all right too. <laughs> Hey, Eric Neely, man, thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure.
Well, I appreciate it, guys. Your your podcast is, I've been very grateful to run across it. Um, knowing that there are Christians out there who take making money seriously. I mean, it is a little bit of a catalyst to uh, how we live life. So mm-hmm. you know, we okay. should take it seriously and uh, and do it the way God tells us to do it. And he doesn't demand that we live in poverty by any means. So amen. I appreciate you guys very much. Friends, thank you for listening in. You have been listening to Blue Collar Money with P.W. Gopal and Mike Hatch. If you would like to reach out to P.W. directly, you can reach him through his website at pwgopal.com or you can reach out to Mike Hatch at empoweredmanhood.com. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming content. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you soon.